Laura, the uh, the President of the United States is in uh, Kiev and the Prime Minister of Australia is in Kalgoorlie. And tomorrow he takes his cabinet to the Kimberley and the voice, of course, is the number one issue. It, it is the number one issue, Philip. Um, it's, uh, it's sort of erupting in all sorts of directions and you'd have to say careering rather wildly along the road. <laughs> Um, I think uh, we've now got three groups uh, of various descriptions in the no uh, camp and at least four, I think, in the yes camp. Um, I think the splintering of them sort of is a bit of a reflection of how complicated this has become. And I think it it is a problem now uh, that there are a lot of sort of legal-sounding arguments being uh, put forward about about the voice, which, you know, I think do spell trouble for the government if it can't um, sort of bring it back uh, into control. Uh, but but it, it can. It can start a yarn. Tell me about that phrase. Uh, well, actually, that's sort of something the government sort of sort of doing, but which is actually also a very community-based um, process as well. Um, we've got this uh, week of action on The Voice, both from the government and from community groups saying, look, let's have a lot of online forums and uh, forums in, uh, you know, public places where we actually just sit and talk to people. And the idea is, uh, you know, The Voice was always an invitation to the Australian community, not to, not to government and not to politicians, uh, to, you know, Make make a make a deal with um, with First Nations people, and so the idea is that you you just go out and talk to people about what's going on. Now that's all very well and good, but I think festering behind this is this sort of idea that there is some sort of detail that you know needs to be cleared up. Now a lot of that has been you know sort of silly things like you know oh well where's the office going to be, and I mean, which is the sort of more stupid end of the um, discussion. But we've got a lot more discussion now about um, legal issues, about the fact that it would be a voice not just to parliament but to executive government. Um, a lot of these are, once again, red herrings, but I think they create enough um, disturbance uh, around these issues, um, you know, questions of high court interventions and all these sorts of things that I think the government's going to have to find a better way of addressing. And Well, Peter Dutton, a... Peter Dutton makes it clear that uh, what he said, he doesn't think the voice will get up. On the yeah. other hand, we've got the Yes campaign with this week of action, councils, churches, unions, community groups, and I see that Pat Anderson, the Uluru Dialogue co-chair, says 80 of First People supported. Well, that might be the case, Philip, but, um, you know, it's we've got a long way to go till October. Um, I thought it was very interesting that uh, Megan Davis, another co-chair at Uluru, was saying this morning that, um, that there would be more detail coming out of these various working groups that are working at the moment um, to explain the sort of technical details of um, this proposal, which would probably come out sometime next month. Um, and I think probably that needs to happen just because, um, you know, there's just so much noise and static around this that both sides are trying to, uh, you know, win the undecided voters. And uh, if you're undecided, you're going to be vulnerable to people raising what sound like perfectly legitimate uh, arguments about what this means, about how, um, you know, the idea that 
uh, the, the voice could somehow not stop or direct decisions by government, but that could be, become, I suppose, the equivalent would be like environmental approval processes. That seems to be the suggestion that somehow the sort of mechanics of proving that you had consulted with the voice can slow government decisions down. That's something I think the government uh, and the advocates for the voice have to really find a way of dealing with. We're talking, of course, to Laura Tingle, Chief Political Correspondent 730. Let's factor in now Linda Burney's uh, announcement that the Albanese government will commit $6 million to establish a, a Makarata commission to look at a process of treaty-making and truth-telling. Yeah, well, this is um, an, an interesting um, development, I think. Um, you know, uh, that there's been this whole, you know, there are three different sort of uh, arms of uh, the Uluru uh, proposal. There's um, the voice, uh, there's the Makarata Commission and there's, and there's treaties. Now, Makarata is a truth and reconciliation process which basically seeks to address what we've discussed before, I think, Philip, the great Australian silence, the fact that, you know, we're not taught about uh, our own history um, in terms of frontier wars and uh, and other uh, sort of interactions, shall we uh, euphemistically put it, between black and white Australia, uh, and um, looks to... Um, you know, correct that by um, sort of documenting what we know of uh, history in various parts of the of the country. Now, the Uluru authors were very clear that um, there was a clear process uh, that the, the voice had to come first uh, and then treaty. And I think part of the reason for that is that you sort of say, well, until you've got sort of really clearly defined bodies of governance in Indigenous Australia, which I think one of the ideas behind the voice is that it would create those bodies um, at federal, state and local levels in a more coherent way. You need them before you can actually be talking about treaty. Uh, and then the Makarata Commission, uh, which is, you know, a sort of a, the, third, the third arm of it. So uh, I think Linda Burney's move to uh, sort of establish that or get it underway is... Uh, partly a reflection of um, a need to reassure parts of black Australia that those issues are also being dealt with. During the pandemic, Australians took $36 billion out of their super. Now uh, Treasurer Jim Sharma says he won't let that happen again. Uh, now, speaking of big big fights, Philip, this is going to be a really big one um, and it's going to go on for quite a long time. I mean, th there's been a cultural brawl going on over superannuation for the last decade. Uh, the Coalition has never really liked the structure of the superannuation industry. Now we're looking back at the question of the cost of it, uh, which um, sort of I'm, I'm thinking that uh, the figures that are being quoted, which is basically that superannuation tax concessions are costing about $50 billion, which, of course, is the sort of sort of blowout number that they're talking about, about the NDIS, just to put it in perspective. Um, the Treasurer is saying it all, the cost of those tax concessions that, you know, anybody with super gets because you're taxed less on your superannuation earnings and um, eventually become tax-free when it's paid out at the moment, um, or you're taken out of the tax system, should I say, uh, he's saying that's going to become a bigger cost than the age pension cost, which, of course, superannuation was supposed to be offsetting when it was um, introduced by Paul Keating back in the 1980s. 
And um, there are a few things here. The first one is to define what super is. And that all sounds a little bit obscure, but it's really about sort of saying, no, super is about retirement savings so that, you know, you cut off the prospect of it being able to be taken out early to be used for other things. But the bigger brawl will become about those tax concessions. Now, uh, for most people, they get a tax concession and they have a, a sort of a, a, a small nest egg. But there are some people who've got more than $5 million in their superannuation accounts. The cost of the tax concessions to them is massive. And, uh, you know, and there's, a, and there's basically an equity question here about is it fair to be giving these massive tax concessions to people who are able to accumulate all this money and then basically live tax-free for the rest of their lives? Or do you put some sort of cap on both uh, the, or, or a tighter cap on contributions and or uh, a higher tax rate uh, on the earnings that, um, uh, that we all receive uh, in superannuation. Now, a lot of those tax questions have not yet been elaborated by the Treasurer, but uh, I think we're going to see him spell those out, um, you know, about what, he's, uh, what he wants to sort of start um, getting the conversation about um, in the next month or two. Let's head back north again. Yesterday, the anniversary of the Darwin bombings and the PM is sitting on a report into our defence forces. Uh, yes, last week he received um, the strategic review, the defence strategic review um, from Angus Houston and Stephen Smith, the former defence minister. Now, this is sort of interesting. Um, of course, this this postdated AUKUS, the um, agreement which involves subs and the whole pushback to a closer relationship with the US and uh, the UK. Um, and it basically is trying to uh, the defence strategic review is really sort of trying to say, well you know, what is it we need to be doing on our defence um, in the years ahead, um, brackets beyond submarines. Um, there have been some strategic leaks um, and well-informed commentary out of this from all those, you know, brainy defence reporters about, you know, more drones and more missiles and um, different sorts of ships, Philip, and fewer tanks. Um, and, uh, it's you know, we haven't actually seen what it's got to say yet, but it's sort of it's sort of good that the government is trying to um, sort of work out a strategy uh, that's separate from AUKUS, if you know what I mean, sort of trying to think conceptually about what all our defence forces do. But you'd have to say it's a bit sort of of a cart and horse problem, having just um, basically signed up um, to go along with the AUKUS deal that the former government did. Um, it sort of sets a lot of the groundwork for the sorts of um, big questions that you've got about defence before uh, anybody gets to go back and have a look at what defence strategy actually says. I'm still puzzled by the fact that we put so much focus on submarines when other countries are more interested in, well, in missiles and drones. But the question comes up that uh, how on earth are they going to pay for all this? <laughs> That is a very good question, Philip, um, possibly by taking away superannuation tax concessions. Um, <laughs> um, look, I think it is, it is uh, really interesting to work that out. I don't think um, anybody quite knows um, how it's all going to be paid for, but they're just going to have to find a way of doing it because um, according to um, the Prime Minister and the Defence Secretary in estimates, you know, we, we face 
well, certainly according to Greg Moriarty, the Defence Secretary in estimates last week, we face, as they say, clear and present dangers and we're not going to have a 10-year warning before you know, something really terrible happens to us. Now, if that's the assessment of the government and its bureaucracy, um, they're going to start spending money to try to address those threats. I'm just looking at the figures here. The, uh, the, the latest government forecasts say the tax cuts will cost a whopping $254 billion over 10 years. Yeah. The government plans to spend nearly $50 billion on defence this financial year in line with the funding trajectory. These numbers are mind-numbing. They're mind-numbing. Um, it's one of the reasons why nobody's really, um, really believes those Stage 3 tax cuts will go through in the way they are currently formed, despite the government's insistence. Uh, and, um, you know, there's going to have to be a lot of reshuffling of priorities um, over the next few years um, if, if, you know, if in fact, um, you know, the government or even an alternative government really wants to put that much money into defence. Laura, lovely to talk to you. Laura Tingle, Chief Political Correspondent 7.30 and also the Chief Political Correspondent for our little wireless program and she'll be back with us uh, next week. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.